As you know, we're in a study of the, the covenants, the biblical covenants. Those, there are four major covenants, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants. <clears throat> Excuse me, our focus right now is on the first of the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant. It was first given as a promise in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and then it is formalized as a covenant two chapters later in Genesis 15. As we've seen, the Abrahamic covenant is unilateral, unconditional, literal, eternal, and irrevocable. There are three parts to the covenant. The land part, the seed part, and the blessing part. Right now, we're in the seed part of the covenant. We've already seen the land part. In the seed part, you see it in Genesis Genesis 12, verse 2, where God promises Abraham that he will make Abraham into a great nation. And then later you see the seed part of the covenant later in the the book of Genesis, where God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 18, in your seed, Sarah in the Hebrew, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So this took us back to Genesis 3.15, which I mentioned last time is the first time in the Bible that Sarah, seed, shows up. And, and let, me, let me explain what I mean when I say that. It's the first time that Sarah shows up in the human context with respect to human seed, human offspring, human descendants. In Genesis chapter 1, there's Sarah with respect to plants and fruits, but that's not really what we're talking about here in the Abrahamic covenant. We're talking about God's promise to Abraham of an offspring, not just that he's going to have a baby, right? I mean, Abraham having a baby boy isn't that big of a deal. But Abraham having a baby boy that is part of the fulfillment of the seed promise, that's a huge deal. And so this is what takes us back to Genesis 3.15, where we first see Sarah seed with respect to human descendants In the Bible, Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This prophecy explains human history. Let me say that again. This prophecy in the very beginning of the Bible explains the history of humanity and the devil's involvement in it, let me remind you of the players in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you. The you there is the serpent. It's the devil. We know from the book of Revelation that the serpent of old, to use the language of Revelation, the serpent of old is the devil himself. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, that's humanity, and between your seed, your seed, is the serpent's seed, the devil's seed, the devil's offspring, and her seed, her seed being the woman's seed. As we have seen, this is a prophecy of perpetual conflict between the serpent, the devil, and humanity. A conflict that sadly the overwhelming majority of humanity and and the overwhelming majority of Christians are utterly clueless to. The conflict between the devil and humanity, and we'll see a little bit of that conflict 
in a moment. <clears throat> There's perpetual conflict between the devil and humanity and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent, as we have seen, is that portion of humanity that is identified with the devil, that is aligned with the devil through unbelief. And the seed of the woman is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the Savior, and that portion of humanity that is identified with Messiah, aligned with Messiah through belief, through faith. The conflict between good and evil is the story of humanity. We know this intrinsically. I mean, we know this naturally. That's why when you open up a novel and you read a novel or you watch a two-hour movie, if you don't find certain essential elements, you say, that was pretty lame. That was a weak movie. I can't believe I just dedicated two hours of my life to that movie. If it doesn't have a protagonist, an antagonist, a conflict, and a resolution. Right? You get to the end of the two-hour movie, and you're like, that's the ending? That was lame. Because there was no resolution to the conflict. Or you're a couple chapters into the book, and into the novel, and, 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 and where is this going? Intrinsically, we know, our minds know, that we must have a protagonist, an antagonist, conflict, and resolution to the conflict. Because this is the nature of humanity. This is the nature of human history, as prophesied by God in the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, with respect to the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But the conflict will not rage forever. The conflict will not continue forever because the prophecy itself in Genesis 3.15 prophesies an end to the conflict, actually a very violent end to the conflict. Genesis 3.15 goes on, he, the he there is the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, shall bruise you, the you is the serpent, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The seed of the woman is Messiah, the most important of all of Abraham's seed. The most important of all of Abraham's descendants, maybe it's the better word than offspring there, is Messiah. He is the seed of the woman. And the serpent would temporarily hurt Messiah. In other words, would bruise him on the heel. The devil, through his agents, through his minions, the seed of the serpent, would kill Messiah. But that was just temporary. That was a three-day death because three days later, Messiah would be raised from the dead to display his victory over the serpent. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then Jesus is not to be worshipped. If Jesus' body is dust to the four winds, then we should mock him like everybody else does. He's a joke. We don't worship a dead prophet. We worship a risen Savior and the resurrection evidenced the victory that Jesus performed on the cross. It evidenced the headshot, if you prefer, you hunters in the audience. It was the headshot, the striking, the bruising of the head of the serpent. And then Revelation 20 will fully display the headshot when the devil himself will be cast into the lake of fire, the place that is described as torments day and night forever, the place that Jesus said was prepared for the devil and his angels, and the place that all of the seed of the serpent who are aligned with the devil by disbelief, by unbelief, 
It's the place where they will spend eternity with their master, the devil. So the seed of the woman, the seed, Messiah, would come not just to eliminate the serpent. He will do that. The seed of the woman comes not just to destroy the devil. He will do that, but to destroy the devil's domain, to destroy the devil's kingdom. 1 John 3, 8 says this, The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The devil's works are his domain of darkness. The reason you have pain as you age, right? If, when, you, when, you're, when you're 15 years old, you're like, pain, what are you talking about? But I work, wake up with my old friend pain every morning. Hey, where, where did that pain come from in the ankle? What did I do yesterday? I, I didn't do anything different, I don't think. And my shoulder hurts. What, what did I do? It's just my body's wasting away slowly but surely as are all of ours. And the older you get, the more you realize it. Pain, suffering, and death are the product of the devil's domain, of the devil's kingdom. And so when the seed of the woman, Messiah, eliminates the devil and eliminates his kingdom, he'll replace it with something else, something that is the kingdom of God where death and pain and suffering are an abhorrence. They're banished. They're vanquished. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The book of Revelation is so central to explaining the unfolding of the curse, of the events of human history, the curse And the conflict are on display in the book of Revelation. We're engaged in the conflict of the ages, but it's invisible now. You don't see the demonic realm. It will be visible in the book of Revelation. And you see all of these incredible apocalypses, to use the Greek word, all of these incredible revelations. By the way, it's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. But in it, you find incredible revelations about the conflict, the conflict that ultimately will be resolved by the seed of the woman. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 5, read like this, 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the tent of God, the dwelling of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, the old things, the former things have passed away. A verse that is of great comfort at a memorial service. Those old things are over for the the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has been promoted to the third heaven in the presence of Almighty God. Those things are over. Just like Billy Graham used to say, one day you will hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe it? I'll be more alive than ever, Billy Graham used to say. I will simply have changed my address, and I will be in the presence of Almighty God. The difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the seed, the seed of the woman, Messiah, is night and day, literally. It is death and suffering and pain versus those things being abolished forever. Look at the end of Revelation 
21, verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what's baked into this promise. That's what's embedded into this promise. The seed promise. Because the seed, the seed of the woman, Messiah, brings a resolution, a violent resolution, actually, to the end of the conflict with the serpent. The devil's conflict against humanity involves the devil killing you. You die because of the devil. The devil hates you. He hates you. Right? Jesus called the devil a murderer from the beginning. It's, it's not that the devil only orchestrated the deaths of Adam and Eve. He did do that. <clears throat> right? He introduced sin. Now, of course, humanity was responsible for our own decisions. But the devil ultimately is the author of sin. Ad, he orchestrated the deaths of Adam and Eve, and he orchestrates your death. You will die because of the devil, because the devil hates you. He hates you. And we ignore these things at our great peril. We die because of sin, which the devil introduced through Adam. And the punishment of sin is, for sin is death, spiritual death and physical death. Even Messiah's death himself was because of sin. Now, of course, he was sinless, but he died in order to pay for the sins of the world. He died in order to undo the works of the devil, to undo the devil's domain. This is why Genesis 3.15 is called the proto-euangelion, to use the old Greek. Two words, protos, right? prototype, means the first type. Protos means first. Euangelion means gospel. So it's pronounced proto-euangelion, or sometimes it's pronounced proto-evangelium, because the U, you flip into a, into a V in English. The first gospel, the first good news, is found there in Genesis 3.15, immediately after the fall, immediately after humanity's rebellion, immediately after Adam and Eve's destiny to the lake of fire, because they followed the devil, whose destiny is the lake of fire, immediately God gives them the first gospel. And they believe. This is why we, why we see Genesis 3.15 as the seed gospel. And the gospel is the same from age to age. It's always faith in the Lord. The gospel is salvation, which is through the gospel, is grace through faith. The seed promise of the Abrahamic covenant is fulfillment of the proto-evangelium. This is why we've been tracking it. This is why we've been pursuing it and tracking the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in early Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, <clears throat> excuse me, there we saw the line of Cain, the seed of the serpent, a godless line, a line that is aligned with the devil through unbelief. We saw Genesis 5, where we saw the line of Seth, the seed of the woman, a godly line, not a sinless line, but a godly line that is aligned with the seed of the woman, Messiah, by faith. But the line of Seth is not only aligned with Messiah by faith, the line of Seth is aligned, by, aligned with Messiah genetically, because Messiah would come through the line of Seth, not through the line of Cain, not through the line of any of the other children of Adam and Eve, and they had many, many children. It comes 
genetically, the line of Messiah is genetically aligned to Seth because Messiah is a descendant of Seth and aligned with the line of Seth through faith. Last time we closed with the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6, which is a full frontal demonic attack on the seed of the woman. We saw different views with respect to Genesis 6, those first few verses. But I believe what's happening is that fallen angels had sexual relations with women in a demonic effort to mutate the human race, to change the DNA structure of the human race. And that's what produced that unique Hebrew word that we saw, the Nephilim. The Nephilim, which is referenced there in the first few verses of Genesis 6. If there is no true humanity, if every human being, or more specifically, if the seed of every female has genetically been changed, if the DNA has been changed so that it's part angelic and part human, then the devil wins and God is a joke. The proto-euangelion is a joke because there's no human who's a seed of Eve, a descendant of Eve, to crush the serpent's head if the DNA structure of every human being has been forever changed. That was the strategy of the devil. There would be no Messiah. There would be no descendant of Eve who would crush the devil. There would be no descendant of Eve who would give relief from the curse by undoing it. And there would be no descendant of Eve who would save those who aligned with, align with him by faith. That was the objective of the devil and the demonic strategy. The Nephilim ushered in a new level of evil into humanity. Keep reading in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to, to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Here we see that the seed of the serpent had become the overwhelming majority of humanity. Everything about humanity became evil. Humanity's thoughts, motivations, and actions. Evil was the order of the day. I feel like that's not that different than the year 2022, but maybe I'm getting off topic for a moment. And so what we see in the text is that God was sorry. It says God was sorry that he made humanity. It's the Hebrew word naham, which in the nifal stem means to be sorry or to regret. And as we've seen in our study of 1 Samuel with respect to God's approach to all this is language of accommodation. This is what you would call theologically an anthropopathism, two Greek words again squished together. We don't realize how dependent we are on the Greeks for some of, our, some of the things of our, of our language. But two Greek words, anthropos, pathos, anthropos meaning, meaning man or human, pathos meaning 
meaning suffering, and you put those two together and you get anthropomorphism, excuse me, anthropopathism. And so it's a figure of, of speech ascribing to God emotions that are of human beings, ascribing human emotions to God. Our emotions are limited by finite knowledge, right? Sometimes I'm at a crossroads and I've got to make a decision. Do I go left? Do I go right? And I don't have all the facts. I know I don't have all the facts, but it's, it's D-Day. It's decision time. I got to make a decision. So I make the decision, go right or go left. And then three, four, five, six months later, I get more facts. And I'm like, man, that was a dumb decision. I wish I hadn't gone left. I'm not using that as a metaphor. But I, I, I wish I hadn't gone that direction. And I'm sorry about that decision. I realized that was, that was a poor decision. That was a bad decision. I'm sorry about this. I regret that decision. Now that I have more facts... This is the language of accommodation that is being used. Of course, it is not a one-to-one relationship by any means because God is omniscient. God doesn't learn any more facts. He's always known all the facts, all the actual facts, all the possible facts. That's the one that makes my brain really hurt. He knows all the things that could have happened that never happened. Ad infinitum. Because once you start going down that path, it's limitless of all the things that could have happened but never happened. He knows all of those, all the actual, all the past, all the future, all the present, instantaneously. There's never been a time that he didn't know those things. There's never been a time that God learned anything because he's totally omniscient. And so you see the limitations of the language of accommodation, the limitations of anthropopathism. It's not a one-to-one relationship at all. It's This language of accommodation is describing God in a fashion that we can understand. Now, when I say all of this, I'm not suggesting that God doesn't have emotions. I believe God does have emotions, but his emotions are not infected by sin like us. His emotions are not limited by limited knowledge like us. I believe God has emotions because the phrase, the wrath of God, God's wrath is mentioned over 600 times in the Bible. Wrath is an emotion. But, of course, his wrath is perfect and holy and righteous, right? Most of the time when we are angry, not all the time, but most of the time when we're wrathful, we're sinning. That's why Paul says, be angry without sinning. Can you have righteous indignation? Yes, but we're really, really poor at having righteous indignation. Most of our indignation is unrighteous. God's indignation is always righteous. God's wrath is always holy, is always righteous. So I say... That God has emotion, it's just His emotion is perfect. His emotion functions in perfect relationship with all of His other attributes like holiness and righteousness and omniscience. So I'm not suggesting that God has no no emotion. I'm saying that the text here is using language of accommodation, an anthropomorphism, so that we can just get a tiny, itty-bitty glimpse of God. I think the description that we're being given here in this context of God being sorry is the idea that something is so opposed to God's will that he acts decisively to undo it. He will act decisively to undo King Saul in 1 Samuel. 
he'll remove, remove him violently and decisively. Just like he will remove the seed of the serpent here in Genesis 6 in a moment decisively and violently. He will undo them just like he will undo King Saul. But let's get back to tracing the seed of the woman in Genesis 6. Genesis 6 verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, meaning he was godly in a wicked era. He was godly in a wicked generation. Noah walked with God. So just like his great-grandfather, Enoch, Noah walked with God. By faith, Noah was righteous. In fact, Peter describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. He called his generation the wicked generation in which he lived that are gone, gone. See, the world's glory is flashy. It's impressive. It's, forgive me if I could, if I, for using this word, it's sexy. Wow. Mm. And then it's gone. That generation of Noah, gone. And we speak of Noah with honor. We speak of Noah with praise because he followed God, because he was righteous, the text says, because he was a preacher of righteousness. And we speak of that generation with disdain, Noah's generation, who at the time thought that they were all that. This is the great deception of unbelief, and we will see more of that in the 1045 today. Keep reading in verse 10. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. So then God gives instructions to Noah to do something that seemed incredibly stupid. Build an ark. What are you talking about, build an ark? Build a big box. I mean, that, that, that's what ark means in the Hebrew, a box. Build an ark. I mean, the, the, the generation of Noah would have thought he was the village idiot. Build an ark for what? Does it rain? If I understand Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6 correctly, it didn't rain at all before the flood. Instead, it was a mist that God would bring up from the soil. Think of it kind of like dew. That, would, that, that God would irrigate the soil that way. So his generation probably thought that Noah was a fool for spending years. Shem, go get some wood. We're going to make some nails for spending years, decades, building this boat. Keep reading in verse 17. This is God speaking. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So God preserves the seed of the woman, and he preserves the seed of the woman two ways. Two ways. You see the two ways? 
He brings judgment. Judgment. God judging is like a physician with the scalpel cutting out the cancer. Judgment is a blessing. It's a blessing to the people of God. The way God delivers the seed of the woman is by judging the seed of the serpent, by judging the wicked, number one. And number two, by delivering the seed of the woman through the judgment. That's what God does for the remnant. He delivers the remnant through judgment, in the midst of judgment, that they may navigate their way through the judgment that he is issuing to protect the remnant. It's that way for the remnant of Israel, and it's that way for the remnant of Gentiles as well. That's important for us to, to, to remember because I think God is going to bring judgment. I said that wrong. God will bring judgment. There is no question that God will judge our culture. I don't like saying that. I wish it weren't true, but it is. He will bring judgment. And what we must remember is that he delivers his people through the midst of judgment, which is what he will do for Noah and his family. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Jump down to verse 4. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. I'm sure he did. He followed the Lord's commandments to the T. God gave Noah various instructions, and he obeyed God to the T because he feared God. He feared God. God, which is to say he had reverential awe of God. He approached God with absolute respect and absolute worship. And that produced obedience, detailed, minuscule obedience. Here are the levels of the ark. Here's the type of wood I want you to build for the ark. Here's how I want you to bring the animals in the ark. And Noah said, you tell me how high to jump, God, and I'll jump. Say jump and I'll jump because he feared God, reverential awe. I'm not making this up. I'm just quoting scripture, right? The writer of Hebrews describes it this way. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. I'm reading from the New King James here. Moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Noah trusted in God and was therefore declared righteous. By faith Noah feared God, so he obeyed God. Keep reading in verse 11 of Genesis 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham, Japheth and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind 
and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered male and female of all flesh entered as God commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher. That's about two stories higher. Higher than the highest mountain, right? Higher than Everest. And the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land and all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. What's the moral of the story? Don't mess with God. That's the moral of the story. I mean, forgive me for using a street term. Don't mess with God. Submit to God. Fear God, if you prefer to use some more theological terms. Submit to Him. Fear Him. God is, here are your theological terms, sovereign. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. And God is righteous. He does not tolerate disobedience. He doesn't. Now, is he gracious? To be sure. Is he loving? To be sure. And the way we obey is by faith, right? We're saved. Trusting in Christ is an act of obedience. This is why we've seen that faith is not a gift, Ephesians 2.89. Faith is not the gift because then we could say to God, well, hey, God, I, I couldn't obey because you didn't allow me to obey. No, faith is our part and everything else is God's part. And so faith is an act of obedience in salvation, and then faith is an act of obedience in sanctification. I'm not saying that we're sinless. We're not. The believer's not sinless, but we should be sinning less. And we do that as an act of faith. God always wins. That's another takeaway here. God always wins. Wins. God's plan is unstoppable, specifically his plan to preserve the seed of the woman. And those who seek to thwart his plan are destined for destruction. Then after Noah and his family get off the ark, we're told events, we're, we're, we're shown events that narrow the line through which the seed of the woman, Messiah, would come. There are a number of important things in the beginning of, in the first half of Genesis chapter 9, like the Noahic covenant, where God promises not to destroy the earth again by a flood. And so every time you see a rainbow in the sky, don't think, oh, hey, that's just a pretty thing that's up in the sky. I mean, it's okay to think that, but that pretty thing up in the sky reveals the covenant of God. When you think of a rainbow, please 
do not think of the LGBTQ movement. It's not their rainbow. It's God's bow. And what is a bow? The Hebrew word there for a bow is a weapon that you pull the bow back. But God, who just exercised his, you know, we don't think of a bow as a, as a powerful weapon. We think of a nuclear warhead as a powerful weapon. Back then they would have thought of a bow as a powerful weapon. A bow, uh, a, a, a spear. But God has just pulled back the bow and used the bow as a weapon to destroy all mankind except for eight people. And so now God displays his weapon in the sky. Associated with rain, because he used rain to flood the earth, he displays his weapon for all generations that we may see his gracious promise that he will not destroy the earth again through that means. He will destroy the earth through another means. But when the rain comes, right, when... The, 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 the 52 inches of rain comes into, into, into Houston, Texas. The Christian should have been comforted. This is not the end. This may be the end of my sheetrock. This may be the end of my carpet. This may be the end of my first story of my two-story home, but this is not the end of the planet. That's what the rainbow promises. And so the, the, there's a lot packed into the first half of Genesis chapter 9, but we don't have time to get into that today because we saw a little bit of the Noahic covenant when we began this study. But our real focus here is the seed promise of the, of the Abrahamic covenant, which takes us to verse 18 of chapter 9. Now the sons of Noah, chapter 9, verse 18 of, of Genesis. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three the whole earth was populated. You're a descendant from Shem, Ham, or Japheth, from one of those, as am I. Verse 20, then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. So the new earth begins with sin, just like the first creation, sin was was introduced in the first creation, in the first earth, if you want to use that phrase. Here in the new earth, it begins with sin as well, even from a godly man, from a righteous man, is the way the text described Noah. Noah gets drunk and his clothes come off. I'm going to do my best to not quote a country western song. He gets drunk and his clothes come off. His sin was not drinking the wine. Wine is described as a, as, as, as a, is used as, as a picture, as an image of the kingdom. It's a time of celebration in the kingdom. The sin wasn't drinking wine. The sin was getting drunk. The sin was drinking so much that you lose control. It's a very serious sin. Keep reading in verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Verse 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they, not, they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from, his, awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So when Noah sobers up and wakes up from his stupor, 
He learns what Ham did to him. Now, some believe that Ham engaged in a homosexual attack against his father because of the language of verse 22, the language that says he saw his father's nakedness. I don't believe that's accurate. And the reason I think that that's inaccurate is because there's a difference in the two Hebrew idioms. One Hebrew idiom, uncovering another's nakedness, the idiom that is used many, many times in Leviticus, is a description of sexual relations, uncovering someone's nakedness. That's not the idiom we have here. The idiom we have here is seeing another's nakedness, which I think literally means seeing another's nakedness, observing another's nakedness. Ham did not engage in a homosexual attack against his father. Ham made fun of his father. Ha, 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 look at dad, he's naked and drunk. And the other two boys, they get, they, they, they get the blanket and they walk backwards to go to Noah. Uh, we're not, we're not, we're not going to make fun of him. And then they, get, they drop the blanket on their father because two of the sons respect their father. But Ham disrespects and makes fun of their, his father. Was his father engaged in sin? Yes, he was. But that doesn't justify Ham making fun of him, mocking him. That's what I think we're, we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 9. Keep reading in verse 25. So he, Noah, said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. Remember, Canaan is a descendant of Ham. And Noah is saying, Cursed be Canaan, a, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Noah gives a blessing and a curse. Blessing and cursing. And he's pronouncing this, and it will play out in future generations. The descendants of Shem, the Shemites, or if you prefer, the Semites, will be the most blessed. The descendants of Japheth will be the second most blessed. The descendants of Ham through Canaan would be cursed. This blessing and cursing wasn't causing future future generations to be good or bad, to be good or evil. This blessing and cursing wasn't saying, wasn't making future generations be one way or the other. God doesn't do that. We still have free will. Every generation has free will. What this blessing and cursing was doing was revealing the nature of the future generations, how they would fit this pattern of blessing and cursing. Really, Noah's blessing on Shem is ultimately the blessing of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come through Shem. The seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, Messiah, comes through Shem. Genesis 10, our next chapter, gives us a listing of various descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're going to move quickly now. As Genesis 10, you get this genealogy. Then in Genesis 11, we get the Tower of Babel, where humanity collectively sins again as a collective, as a group. And as part of the judgment, God separates humanity, separates people by language, This appears to also be the beginning 
of racial distinctions, racial differences, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, cultural diversity as well from following the, the Tower of Babel and the judgment where, where God separated the peoples by language and then ultimately there, I, I believe this, this leads to the separation racially and ethnically and, and, and in the, the, the different nations that we have. This all is leading up to the Abrahamic covenant. After the Tower of Babel, in Genesis 11, we get another genealogy, but this time only of Shem. It's, more detailed, it's a more detailed genealogy of Shem. And Genesis 11 ends with a very important descendant of Shem in the genealogy. It ends with Abraham, because in Genesis 12, God makes the seed promise to this descendant of Shem, a very important descendant of Shem, the Semite, Abraham. And the seed promise is that God would make Abraham into a great nation. In other words, God would make Abraham into a new race of Semites. Not all the Semites would have this blessing. Not all the Shemites. Not all the descendants of Shem would have the blessing. It's a particular part of the pie. It's a a slice of the pie of the Shemites. Through this one Shemite, Semite, Abraham, God would create a new race and that race would be the Jewish race. That race would bless all the other races, all the other ethnicities, all the other cultures. And you see how these things are connected, right? Genesis 11, you get the creation of the, the languages, the groups, the, the, even though it's not specific in Genesis 11, I think you also get the races, all of that, and the ethnicity, and the culture, And then in Genesis 11, at the end, we get Abraham. And through Abraham, God's going to create a special race that will bless all the other races, that will bless all the other cultures, that will bless all the other ethnicities, all the other nations. This is the the context here for the seed promise of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why in Genesis 12, 3, it says, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 22, 18, In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed will be blessed. The Jews were designated, were designed by God to be a kingdom of priests, a conduit. What does a priest do? A priest is a middleman. A priest is the middleman between the people and God. And so God designed this new race to be a race. Imagine it, the whole race. A race of priests, a kingdom of priests. And the king of the kingdom of priests would be the seed of the woman. Messiah, you see how all these things interconnect. If we just dove into Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and just began and ended there, you'd you'd miss so much of this context. There's There's a story to the Bible. There's a theme to the Bible. And it runs through the text from book to book to book because the book, all 66 books, are written by one author, capital A, by God the Holy Spirit who uses human authors, used past tense, human authors to write it without compromising the personality of each human author. Right now we're in Genesis written by Moses, but the theme of, right now we're in the seed part of the Abrahamic covenant, that theme runs all the way through the scripture, memorialized by different human authors, moved by the same 
divine author, God the Holy Spirit. When God promised Abraham that he would, that Abraham would be a great nation, it had to have been an incredible thing for Abraham to hear because he didn't have any kids. He has no children, no descendants. He's childless, he and his wife. And actually, they're not just childless. They're way beyond the, the age of childbearing. Abraham was 75 years old when he entered Canaan, and Sarah was 65 years old. Abraham was 100 years old, and his wife 90 years old when Isaac was born, when the promise began to be fulfilled. And it's almost kind of funny. It is kind of funny. I mean, you can't throw too many tomatoes. I mean, I need to be careful how I say this. Isaac's name is Laughter. And when Sarah heard that she was going to give birth, she laughed. I mean, she's an elderly lady, and she's going to give birth. This is why his name is Isaac. The notion that a 90-year-old woman... Let's go back even before. The notion that a 100-year-old man is going to impregnate his wife. That's almost kind of funny. And the notion that a 90-year-old woman is going to be pregnant way past the, the time of menopause and deliver a baby. Funny. And that's why the baby's name is laughter. That's what Isaac means. So this whole thing had to be spectacular for Abraham to hear. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 11, 11, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. The him there is capitalized. The him there is God. Verse 12, Therefore there was born even of one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead, At that, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the the seashore. The point is, with God, nothing is impossible. God makes the dead live. Sarah was sexually dead. Abraham was sexually dead. And God makes the dead live. With God, nothing is impossible. They both trusted in God, even even though from a human standpoint, it was humorous. From a human standpoint, it was, the reason it's funny is because it's because it sounds ridiculous. That, that, that's what makes humor humor, is something that seems odd. I mean, you know, when the, when, the, when the comedian stands up and he, and he makes humor, what makes us laugh is he says something that is difficult to believe. And the good ones do it with good timing, right? Abraham is sexually dead. Sarah is sexually dead. But they both trust in God, and God rewards their trust. They both trusted in the Lord, and the Lord gave them a child. Not just any child, but a child that is described as the monogenes in the Greek. You're familiar with that, right? Only begotten. The monogenes. Abraham has other sons. But Isaac is called the only begotten. It's not that Isaac is the Savior. It's that Isaac is unique and the promise flows through Isaac. It doesn't flow through Ishmael. It doesn't flow through the other sons that, that Abraham will have when he remarries after Sarah passes away. It flows the promise, the seed promise. The seed of the woman will flow through, the, the, the promise will flow through the boy of laughter. 
whose name is laughter, through Isaac. Through the obedience of Sarah and Abraham, God produced a kingdom of priests through which the entire world is blessed. What does the writer of Hebrews say with respect to faith? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's not the end of the verse. The verse doesn't end with that in Hebrews 11.6. You must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's not enough just to believe, I believe in God. La, la, la. It's not enough to believe in God. You must believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Right? That's what salvation is. We believe that he will save us from eternal damnation, which we deserve. We believe that he will give us, that, 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 that we have deliverance from the lake of fire. We believe that he rewards us, in other words, by our faith. And this is what happens with, with Abraham and Sarah. They believe that God will do the humorous and cause this elderly couple to conceive and then Sarah to deliver the baby. And through the baby, the line goes on. From Adam and Eve to, to Seth, down the line, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to the boy whose name is Laughter, Isaac, and then it goes on from there. The line is a line of blessing. Because through the line will be the seed of the, the seed of the woman, Messiah, which takes us to the third and final part of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing part of the covenant, which we will see next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you open our eyes to it. Give us wonder and awe with respect to how you have recorded this for us. Help us approach you with respect, with reverence, and even with fear. Because you're an awesome God, a God to be praised, and a God to be awed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.